0: This is the first Sunday of Christmas. Usually we get one Sunday after Christmas and not two, although provision is made for two. But this time we will have one Sunday after Christmas and you don't have to make that sound when you do that, but (laughs) next Sunday is Epiphany. Christmas is the feast that is about the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. Epiphany is the season that is about the manifestation of Christ to the world, the belief that Christian people have always had that the birth of Jesus Christ was and has universal significance for the world. I like to use Jesus more than I use Christ. A lot of people would think that Christ was Jesus' last name, no. Jesus Christ. It means something else. Jesus is the Messiah, and in Greek, Christos is what it means, the Anointed One, be that as it may. What I thought I would do this morning is to preach again about the affirmations that I mention every Christmas. I think they're important, and I think that the biblical readings and the Uh, Tradition of the Church with a capital T always point to them. And they should be sort of guiding principles that transcend merely the Christmas season. There are things that we can take with us and understand about our common life together as a community, but also about ourselves. And that's an important thing because they are things that can give us confidence and hope for the future. The, The first affirmation... For Christmas, the Christmas season is that, uh, is the goodness of our humanity, that we affirm the goodness of our humanity. That, as it says in Genesis, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So we understand something that we're affirming, and that is our basic goodness. You know, there are a variety of brands of Christianity, all of them have been capable of heroic deeds. But there is a strain in Christianity that suggests that uh, all the goodness that I have just described to you was obliterated in the Garden of Eden. And it is only through Jesus that we get it back. But there's another view in Christianity which says that what happened in the Garden of Eden was that there was a disfigurement that occurred in the human understanding but that we have always been capable still of knowing the good and being able to know the good allows us to say how then now can we live into that goodness being made in the image and likeness of God so we affirm that we understand as Christian people the goodness of our humanity the starting place, the default position. The second affirmation is that we affirm that each of us can achieve the highest of our human potential. We can't do it by ourselves. We do it together in community. We do it with God's help. But realizing our human potential is realizing that we have within us the basic goodness that I have just described, and we also are the possessors of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about the Johannine prologue, and in that prologue, what is, set, what is we are told is that God's illuminative processes are within every human being. The ability to see the light in the midst of darkness And the darkness has, the light has never been overcome by the darkness. That's what it says in the Johannine Prologue. So we affirm that we can achieve the highest of our human potential. The third affirmation, I should say, by the way, that when I say that, the way we do it is not just through heroic deeds and activities. We do it through the ordinary and the commonplace activities of our everyday living. You know, fulfilling the duties of state, as Dean Parsons used to say. Get up and brush your teeth. Pay attention to what you're doing. You know, pursue excellence. Realize its importance. Become flexible. All of those things are how we achieve the highest of our human potentiality. The third affirmation is that it is possible for christian people to be joyful and in 2012 uh... towards the end of the year that became tough for a lot of people pretty bad pretty hard to see light at the end of the tunnel but we insist that joy is something that is important for everybody uh, who seeks to bring health and wholeness to our internal emotional spiritual and mental states and greater health and wholeness to our relational life. And that is the sure confidence that the conundrums, the ambiguities and uncertainties of your life can come into surer and clearer focus as you live. And the, the way that happens is by applying yourself to it, not just passively laying back and believing that we're all floating down a stream of grace, but that in fact we can be joyful because it is possible to know... Uh, The future, because God is always present to us in some way. The possibility to be joyful. And finally, perhaps the most important is that Christian people uh, are to be about peace. We say, peace on earth. And this is what we hope and yearn for. Peace is not merely the absence of warfare. Peace is a much more affirmative uh, quality in human life. I suspect in historical terms, if you were to read a book about the historical Jesus, one of the things they would say to you is that Jesus was an advocate for a group within Judaism that you could have called the Peace Party. The one who was saying, you know what, we need to bring the shalom of God to all human interaction. Shalom is a much richer term than peace. Shalom can mean the following. Completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. And we need to add to that, which is done in the definitions that you read uh, from the Hebrew word shalom, that all of these qualities are understood to be within the context of justice, God's justice. And so peace and justice don't, aren't separate, they go together. And so when we affirm that, we affirm its importance. That can be a little scary. I hope you've seen the movie Lincoln. It's really good. And Nancy and I decided after we saw the movie that we'd watch again Ken Burns' series on the Civil War. And last night we were watching the episode where Shelby Foote says that Robert E. Lee was in his headquarters and a young officer came in for the purpose of being taken to the woodshed. And Robert E. Lee looked at him and said, Don't you worry, son, you'll get justice here. And he said, that's what I'm afraid of, General. (laughs) You know, the priest I began my ministry with uh, used to ask us from time to time, do you want to get what you deserve right now? Do you want to get what you deserve? I don't know about you, but I'm going to try to postpone that for as long as I can. So Christian people need to be about peace, but peace with justice. So let's take the readings for today because they're important. We have a reading from Isaiah. Actually, if you want to impress your friends and amaze them, you can say this reading is from 3rd Isaiah, Trito Isaiah, chapter 61. And it's about the return from exile in Babylon. The people now are coming back from the Babylonian exile to Jerusalem. And they're going to engage in a process of rebuilding. Rebuilding their lives, rebuilding the city, and rebuilding the temple. And this is an expression, it is a psalm that Isaiah is using to express gratitude for this opportunity. For the return from exile... For the possibility now to rebuild and most importantly an acknowledgement that the mistakes that were made in the past which may have produced the Babylonian exile in the first place are now going to be learned and not done anymore. So you know this is getting near New Year's isn't it and so... We all think about New Year's resolutions. And maybe it's a good idea to think about the mistakes in the past, not to be governed by them, of course, but to understand that we can actually do things differently. We don't have to do things the same way. And we learn from our mistakes, you know? By the way, that's what a lot of difficult people don't do, they don't learn from their mistakes. And you can see it in, in, in people's lives, right? In our own lives when we realize, boy, I haven't learned anything about that. And maybe I really need to now. So this is the thanksgiving for the opportunity. This isn't the finger point comment about that. It's that Isaiah is saying, God's glorious work is going to enable us to be able to have that kind of insight and to do things differently. Galatians sounds like one of those turgid pieces of Pauline reasoning that is very difficult to unpack, but I'm going to make an attempt to do it. It's about one of the classics of Reformed theology in some way, salvation by grace through faith, and Paul is speaking about this. But here's, here's how we might understand this in terms of how Paul thinks about it. Paul is writing to uh, the churches in Galatia it's not just one church it's a group of churches and what he has uh, had to contend with or in his absence are a group of Christians who have moved into Galatia into these communities and have said to those Christians if you want to be a true Christian you have to keep the Jewish law that is that is necessary And what does it mean in this case? It means all males have to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath and you need to keep the dietary laws. So Paul is concerned about the issue of who's in and who's out. So he was raised in the Jew, on the Jewish side of this and he said the way you were in was not was, a, was the practice of the law. And he says here we've had to have the law before Christ as a, as a guardian. If you read it in the Greek text, it says we had to have a pedagogos. A pedagogus is a household slave who had responsibility for the children and had to take them to school and watch them and bring them back. Maybe you've heard the word pedagogue somewhere in your past. So Paul said we had to have a pedagogue. We had to have somebody who was watching over us in this way. But now, in Jesus Christ and through faith, we don't have to do that any longer. So Paul's view is, if you're a Jew and you keep the law, that's up to you. But that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't keep you in. What keeps you in is faith in Christ. And for a Gentile who has never kept the law, they don't need to keep the law. Because why they're in is faith in Christ. And so he is affirming the importance of this. Uh, Some Episcopalians would say that we are justified by faith through grace. And indeed we are. But we would add to that that you cannot think of faith apart from hope and charity. And that those three things come together. And I think Paul would agree with that too. But he's saying, you are not, you don't need to keep the law. But he's also saying something else. Through this process, we have experienced in the community of faith a massive undertaking by God for inclusion of everybody. So people who have faith in Christ and become members of the community now through their baptism are in a world where there is no slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. It's all level. And that in fact, we are to be, as it says in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And so by virtue of that, that means that we're part of God's inclusionary work And that that is at the center of our self-understanding, both as human beings and as Christian people. So it's powerful what Paul says today in Galatians. And finally, we have the Johannine prologue. It's the introduction to John's gospel. And if you tell your friends the Johannine prologue, they may be very impressed. So just file it on ice, right? The introduction to John's gospel. What we have here is a description by John of what the importance and the significance of the coming of Jesus, it means. And he speaks about the divine light, the illuminative processes of God at work in the hearts of people and in the community of faith, a light that cannot be vanquished by the darkness but he also refers to Jesus as the Word of God, the Logos. So, this is a very rich and important concept, just like shalom. It can mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, principle, standard. My favorite one is, for last, the organizing principle by which we understand our lives by which we understand the mighty works of Jesus Christ, by which we understand the connection that we have and how that we can do these things too. John is perhaps the most mystical of all of the gospel writers and he believes that the goal of the Christian life is something called mystical union. So mystical union sounds a little Star tr- uh, Twilight to me, doesn't it, you know? So, and what mystical union really means is this the opening of two realities, one into another, such that I have the same knowledge of the other that I do of myself. That is what mystical union means. It is now knowing. You and I have a great deal of difficulty with that. The goal of the spiritual life and certain uh, types of prayer uh, can lead to this kind of union with God. But I suspect uh, most of us have experienced that in various ways at least for a split second from time to time. And John is speaking about it in terms of our relationship with the Christ in this way. He believes that if God were walking around on the earth, he would be just like Jesus. And more to the point, Jesus was not walking around six, six inches off the ground. He turned out to be a human being just like we did. And so in the course of his teaching, he gave us tools that we could use. Father Thomas Keating says, this process involved Jesus assuming the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. You know, if you went back to Palestine in the first century and asked Jesus about a space capsule, he would have no idea what you meant. But we have created a thing in our mind like, well, he's God, he must have known about a space capsule. Probably not and in no way compromises his divinity. He also introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, (coughs) giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. In other words, he did what St. Athanasius of Alexandria said about him. God became man that we might become God, or... Thomas Keating rephrasing that, we are not God, but our true self is God. And that's what it means to live into the image, to live, to achieve the highest of our human potential, to become what we already are. Jesus has joined the human family and has not just subjected himself to the consequences of the flesh but also introduce the principle of redemption from all the pre-rational programs for happiness that center around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. None of those things go away from us for our entire life. And the issue that we must struggle with on a daily basis is how to keep those things in balance. You know, redemption has sort of an ultimate quality, doesn't it? Oh, I'm saved. But the way you and I feel redemption are through the commonplace activities of our own life. Do you know what it feels like to be let off the hook? When you knew, like that young officer with Robert E. Lee, you'll get justice here. Well, that's what I'm afraid of. And then you get let off the hook. Don't you feel a little bit of redemption? Don't you sigh or go... Right? Like the woman in front of the Mervyn's thing waiting for it to open. Open, open, open. You know, that's the way most people pray. That's the they think, Oh, open, open, open. You know, whoa. That's what God is the great wish-granter in the sky. God will let you off the hook because He unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. And for that, we owe everything. So this week, give thanks for the redemptive processes of God in your life, for the possibility for us to live into the four affirmations, and to understand that that is the gift that keeps on giving. Amen.